Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to this week's Between the Lines programme here on News Talk with myself, Andrea Gilligan. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about our last programme. You can still listen back on the website at newstalk.com or as always, you can download all of our episodes here at Between the Lines on the Go Loud app. Coming up on this particular programme, all this summer, we've been running a series here on News Talk about the truth about direct provision. And that's the topic chosen for today's episode. Joining me on the line, first of all, is the CEO of NASC, the Migrant Rights and uh, Refugee Centre, Fiona Finn. Fiona, first of all, my thanks to you for taking the call here today. Just can you outline, first of all, Fiona, please, how the direct provision process works in this country? The direct provision was established in 2000 and it was in direct response at that time. There were really, you know, I suppose record high numbers of people coming to Ireland seeking asylum. And there was a perception there that um, there would be almost what was called like a pull factor. So people were attracted to Ireland as a destination um, to seek asylum. Now, we would obviously refute that. And so what direct provision, so the state put in place a system of direct provision. That's basically... Um, they um, so they put out to tender a contract a number of hotels, um, uh, convents, and sort of um, another a lot of kind of congregated settings really, and run by private contractors to house asylum seekers, people seeking asylum in Ireland in this accommodation. And as direct provision, the name implies, the state would then directly provide for people who were living in these centres. So. Well, up until um, 2016, they didn't have the right to work, so they were given an allowance of 19 euros 10 a week. Now that has increased um, in the last three years. Um, so people were housed within these kind of large congregated settings until their application for asylum was processed. Um, the system has, you know, I mean, the the issues and the problems with direct provision have been very well documented, and I think. Um, for us, I think what's very kind of encouraging and heartening is the fact that I think in general, Irish people now are very much more aware of the system of direct provision because before people weren't, because they were sort of housed in um, accommodation outside the kind of the main urban centres. They were in kind of isolated settings away from the rest of the community. And I think we treat um, asylum seekers in the same way that we've treated lots of people historically in our society that we deemed to be kind of other or people that don't really belong. So in the same way that we had the migrant laundries for women who got pregnant and were unmarried, we've kind of applied that same almost kind of social policy model to um, asylum seekers who are coming here seeking asylum and seeking protection. And that, as with the main structures and the infrastructure of that system, has remained in place for the last 20 years. There have been some changes. There's been the right to work, and there's a little bit more oversight. And protection applicants now have an increase in their allowance, so they're allowed to receive €28.60 per week. But the changes have been very, very, very slow and very piecemeal. And I think the system is very much kind of, it's riven with delays. Fiona, can I just get you to outline what are we doing differently to other European countries or what are other countries doing better than us when it comes to the um, it comes to providing direct provision? I mean, first and foremost, um, we seem to have an inherent problem in the delays that are within the system. So Ireland has, you know, like people can spend kind of up to anything up to four to five years while they're waiting for the process 
for their application to be processed. In most other European countries, applications are processed, processed within a sort of a six to nine month period. And why, why is that delay? Like what, what um, is the reason? I think initially the reason was that we had a more complicated um, asylum process. Now that has been streamlined. That was streamlined under the new International Protection Act, whereby you have now one interview and then in that interview your application for asylum or subsidiary protection or permission to remain is considered as one. Now that's been helpful. That has helped to speed up the process. But when the new act came in, and the department um, at the time, it was the, the International Protection Office, brought with it a backlog of over 4,000 cases. So we've been constantly working in a backlog situation. And there hasn't been sufficient resources that haven't been put in to the system to enable um, the decision makers to get through the decisions in um, an, a, like an a fair and expedient manner. But is and that to do with the, I mean, to be fair to the department in terms of dealing with this particular issue is that to do with the complexity of the applications or just in terms of fact checking and getting details or is has there been any reason given as to why it's taking so long to process applications I mean, one of the main reasons why it's been taking so long is that um, the international protection office and it was formerly the office of the refugee applications commissioner has been chronically under resourced since its inception so if you don't have enough staff within the centre or within, within the um, International Protection Office, then the, claim, the applications cannot be processed uh, and applications cannot be determined in an expedient manner. I think like, in, in the Irish context, we get very, very, very few asylum seekers when we look at the overall context in Europe. Like We're averaging about 3,500 a year. In Germany, they've got 150 to 200,000 some years. In France, it's, it's very high. And in the UK, we're looking at maybe 78 to 80,000 applications. But we're a much smaller country, I suppose. Exactly. We are a much smaller country, but at the same time, 3,500 is not an unmanageable number. How has that figure arrived at? That figure is taken basically more or less over an average of the number of applications over the last sort of three to four years. So whilst there are spikes and there are dips in the numbers of people that come in, but overall, if we look at it, we're looking at an average of about 3,500 people. So we should be able to design and operate a system that um, can deal with 3,500 applications. All our, our EU partners seem to be able to do it with much, much, much higher numbers. I think for us, it, it does come down to a resourcing issue. So are you saying, Fiona, sorry to, to get into, you know, to, to get bogged no, down no. In, in the detail of this, but are you saying that it, it's just as simple as transferring civil servants or staff from one department to another and we clear a backlog? Like, are there, there, there has to be more to it than that. Well, I think within, so uh, yes, it, it's obviously if you're looking for people who to, to work within the International Protection Office, they have to have a certain skill level. I don't know, recruitment may be an issue. We are reliant on um, what's called like private practitioners or a private panel. So within that, there's a small number of staff within the International Protection Office. And then to help deal with the backlog, some of the work is contracted out to private practitioners. Now, obviously, private practitioners, whilst they're really good, they also have other work and they have other jobs. So um, dealing with an asylum application may not be their priority. So I think what we need to do is create within the International Protection Office itself sufficient resources and sufficient staffing within which to firstly deal with and clear any the backlogs and then to start um, processing the remaining applications in a timely manner. Because when the new Act came in, like we started off with a backlog of 4,000 applications. So the 
International Protection Office has been consistently operating and running at a backlog system and hasn't been unable to clear that backlog. So I think for us, resourcing is an absolutely critical issue. Like the asylum process, it's almost been the Cinderella, really, of the Department of Justice. Now, a lot of the resources were put into direct provision as well. So my guess is the resources, like the majority of the resources are put into the accommodation section and the uh, processing piece then, I think, has has been left behind within, within our overall system. And when people go in, I suppose when people arrive here in this country, you make your asylum application, you immediately then, I assume, are assigned to a direct provision centre. Is that right? So you initially come in and you make your asylum application. You're housed initially in an initial reception centre, which is in Balsaskin in Dublin. And now, theoretically, you're supposed to be in Balsaskin for a, a minimum of maybe four weeks. And then from there, then you're moved out into a direct provision centre um, across the country. Asylum seekers have no choice as to where they go to live. Um, the situation has, uh, the, the issues within direct provision has been compounded really by the housing crisis. So we have a lot of people who are living in our system that have a permission and they have a residency permission, but they can't move out because of the housing crisis. So capacity within our existing centres has become a huge issue over the last um, kind of, especially suppose, over the over the last two years. So what has been happening then is that the Department of Justice have had to uh, resort to emergency accommodation, which is sourcing kind of rooms in hotels in clusters again scattered throughout the country. When you're in the direct provision centre, then your the application process can begin. After you, you get an initial um, questionnaire, which I think it's, uh, it falls to about maybe 150, uh, 160 questions within that questionnaire. Very often, asylum seekers um, have to fill out that questionnaire unaided, um, so they don't get early legal advice, which I think, again, is a critical um, factor because you know evidence has shown that if people receive early legal advice at the earliest possible um, instance, then you have a better quality of applications, and then there are less uh, and then the numbers of kind of um, appeals and reviews and judicial reviews will fall off. So um, people then remain in direct provision until their, their asylum application is finalised. Okay. Um, I want to ask you just to stay on this particular topic, but I suppose direct provision centres and people living in direct provision haven't been exempt from the COVID-19 pandemic that we've had here in this country and worldwide over the course of the past six months. How has that situation been? It's been very, very, very difficult for um, people who are living in direct provision. Um, I think so over the, you know, today's really since since the pandemic has occurred, we've had 21 outbreaks of covid in direct provision centres, and that's come up to about maybe, I think it's about 235 cases. Um, the, initially, I think the, the response of the Department of Justice was too slow, because if you compare how the um, situation in the homeless sector was dealt with, I think they managed the, and they protected homeless people um, a lot better than they protected um, asylum. Um, Within our direct provision centres, it is very, very, very difficult for people to self-isolate. I mean, they're still living in congregated settings. You have over 42% of people who are in direct provision are sharing a room with somebody who is not a member of their family. And then in addition to that, they're sharing communal spaces like corridors, bathrooms, canteens and kitchens. So 
the ability for people to be able to self-isolate and to protect themselves and protect the, the, the wider community has been very, very, very challenging for people. Um, I think, you know, and the situation is only going to continue unless we can start to source additional accommodation to be able to, to enable people to be able to self-isolate and to be able to socially distance and protect themselves over the duration of the pandemic, because this is not going to go away. Further testing has been announced um, within recent days yeah. for the Direct Provision Centre, and it's Direct Provision Centre is similarly to those um, to, to meat factories as well. Is that a satisfactory response, Fiona? I think it, it is. It's part of the response. Um, I think we need to be very careful. I think it will give public protection applicants some degree of comfort, but also I think if um, people in direct provision are going to be tested now, I think it's going to be on a weekly basis, then I think that's just one tool in the armour in which the, that uh, protection applicants protect can, can, can be protected and can feel protected. I think um, the, the, um, the, the health authorities need to engage very, very, very carefully and proactively with people in direct provision. Um, at the moment, what we don't want to happen is that asylum seekers are going to be stigmatised. They're going to be seen as, you know, people who have COVID or people who are bringing COVID into the community. I think we saw traces of that um, in Carrasadine over the pandemic. So I think that that has to be done very much in collaboration with um, people who were living in the centres. But again, I think that's just really putting stick and plaster on a much, much, much wider issue. I mean, people are still living in congregated settings. There's, you know, two to three people in a room. They're still sharing bathrooms. They're still sharing communal spaces and they're still sharing kitchens. So it's part of the solution, but it's not the whole of the solution. Okay. CEO of NASC, the Migrant and Refugee Rights Centre, Fiona Finn. My thanks to you for joining us here on Between the Lines this morning. Do stay with us. We'll have more as part of our series here on News Talk about the truth about direct provision coming up on Between the Lines in just a few moments. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to the second part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're continuing our discussion on direct provision here on News Talk over the past number of weeks. We've been looking at a very special series, The Truth About Direct Provision in This Country. Well, joining me on the line is the CEO of the Irish Refugee Council, Nick Henderson. Nick, can I just ask you, first of all, to give us your views on the current direct provision system in this country? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, direct provision is a system that we criticised uh, consistently uh, for, for many years, uh, along with many other bodies, uh, TDs, international uh, human rights bodies and so on. Um, but I think what's happened in recent months is the pandemic has placed this system in a new light and has demonstrated that any congregated setting uh, is particularly problematic uh, for the simple reason that people are struggling to uh, isolate themselves from other people. Social distancing in these sort of centres is, is very difficult. We released on Monday a new report based on a survey of people with experiences of direct provision during the pandemic. And uh, the, the really striking findings and feedback from respondents to that survey was just fear and trepidation about not being able to socially distance themselves from others. So uh, the, going forward, the programme for government contains a commitment to end this system, which is very welcome. It's 
very significant mm-hmm. moment, but there's a huge amount of work to be done to implement a new system. Okay. Just before you go any further, Nick, I just want to ask you about that decision to effectively disband um, direct provision in this country and what, you know, other alternatives might look like. I mean, we know the, the current economic situation in Ireland at the minute and, and how that's likely to be for the next coming months. What do you see as the alternatives to direct provision? Yeah, we've uh, looked at this in detail and there's several models that could be pursued. You could uh, try and engage or, uh, approved housing bodies and they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Some simply build houses and provide them to people. Others uh, provide more wraparound services. But we've had discussions with those approved housing bodies in recent years and I think they would be willing to become more involved in the provisional accommodation. Uh, There's a few barriers to that at the moment. One is the procurement process used by the Department of Justice is very narrow and doesn't really uh, entice those approved housing bodies to come on board. A second model that you could use would be to bring local authorities uh, more into the mix. At the moment, this is a very uh, top-down system, and local authorities uh, really don't have any um, say... um, particularly for people who uh, arrive and claim asylum and are dispersed using direct provision. They do have more of a role for resettled refugees. But you could use local authorities more. Uh, There could be some sort of allocation or key that says a particular local authority will provide accommodation to a particular number of people. That could work. Uh, We would have some concerns about how local authorities would be able to implement that and the experience of Uh, the travelling community and local authorities supporting people from the travelling community and accessing accommodation hasn't been uh, good. Um, So that would be another model. Um, I think there's a a wide ranging recognition that this isn't a system that's going to be ending overnight. Um, There are more than 7,000 people in this system across 84 locations. However much we would want to end it overnight, uh, I don't see that as being likely. Mm. Uh, is there an onus on governments to governments across Europe, across the world, to provide, as, as you call it, you know, individual housing um, for people in direct provision? Is is that a? It wouldn't go so far. I don't think it goes as far as saying that there should be individual accommodation provided. Uh, Euro- European Union law now governs how we accommodate people seeking asylum it's something called the reception conditions directive we didn't uh, apply that directive uh, until summer of 2018 but now that we have we've transposed it into irish law that says that accommodation should be provided it should meet people's needs and provide um, people with basic dignity it doesn't go so far as to say that people should be provided with own own door accommodation Uh, One thing that we have done uh, and we did in the middle of the pandemic was we sought a legal opinion from senior counsel as to what the obligations were on the Irish state to accommodate people in the protection process during a pandemic. And that opinion did go so far as to state that there was a necessity during a public health emergency like the pandemic to provide accommodation to people. One thing I would say in the background to this, and your listeners may be wondering this, is, is just the expense of the current system. So human rights law 
as it stands, may not go so far as saying that owned or accommodation should be provided. But there is a, a budgetary um, angle to this, and that's that we've simply spent huge amounts of money on a system uh, for the last 20 years that is going to that, that costs a hell of a lot. I think the Irish Examiner uh, reported that the the budget had doubled, um, and uh, I think that it's going to be 160, 160 million for um, for, for 20. Uh, 20, which is a huge amount of money, and it's, it's more than double the, the, the estimate. So that's another angle: is how do we get a system that the public have um, that's good for the person in it? And, and how uh, is this funded, Nick? Uh, directly from the Department of Justice, uh, they would receive a, an annual budget um, through the budgetary process, uh, which states how much they would receive to provide that accommodation, and they would spend it during the during the year there's been a huge increase as i say a huge overrun in the budget because in recent years for the last two years we've uh, relied on what's called emergency accommodation so you have two types of accommodation direct provision of which there's around 30 to 40 centers it fluctuates and the number fluctuates and then there's another 30 or 40 centers uh, emergency centers and they can be anything from small bnbs uh, through to large hotels they're particularly problematic, and while direct provision is, has been much criticised, emergency accommodation can be really difficult for people because it's it's very it's in a, inappropriate locations, inappropriate buildings, staff members aren't trained or um, or, or not able to provide the support that people people need. But the budget is from the Department of Justice. But the, the point I'm, I'm trying to to to, to uh, get get to Nick is that do the Irish government have a legal duty? To provide yeah, housing they, to asylum they, seekers, they would very much so. Yeah, you cannot. There's, there's a basic that, that the reception conditions directive states that a protection applicant, applicant, somebody who applies for protection, uh, would be uh, has to be given accommodation. And do they um, only have to be given? Do people only have to be provided with accommodation once their applications have been processed? Like, can can anybody arrive here today in this country and seek asylum? Yes, you could arrive here. Uh, and you have would, to be provided with accommodation at that point? You you would be, but there's certain things that the, the state has the ability to find a, a case inadmissible. So, And there's various categories of uh, inadmissibility. And in our experience, if your case is found to be inadmissible, you may not be provided with accommodation. So if you are, I think it's if you're a European Union citizen, you may not be able to apply for asylum because, or you may, your case will be found inadmissible because there's a, a presumption, a strong presumption that nobody in Europe um, has a valid ha, can meet the definition of a refugee. Uh, you can also be found inadmissible if you're you've claimed asylum in another European Union state. Um, so, but other than those categories, yes, if you claim if you claim protection. The state does have an obligation to accommodate you during the, your asylum claim, which is a which is obviously a, a finite period of time. I'm just curious as to what might happen, and, and maybe this doesn't happen in cases where somebody um, comes to Ireland, they seek asylum, they're provided with maybe emergency accommodation or accommodation while their application has been processed, and then for whatever reason, um, it's deemed to be illegitimate, or the government doesn't, you know, it's it, it's not processed. I mean, what happens then? Well, the, you would be... So, for example, I've been working on a situation where somebody passed through Greece and they came to Ireland and they said that they couldn't be safe in Greece because of the 
the Greek state's inability to support people seeking asylum, large numbers of people seeking asylum and, and little infrastructure around that. Um, so that person um, would be, has received a decision saying that they would be returned to Greece. Now, in, in reality, whether that actually happens is another matter. Uh, whether, uh, and particularly during a pandemic, those sort of movements, the transfer of people under the Dublin regulation, which is the European Union regulation under which this is decided, that they, they haven't been happening or only beginning to, to restart. Um, so, it, it, and then if, if you somebody was to go through the protection application process, then you and your you were found not to be a refugee, not to be in need of subsidiary protection. Then you would be theoretically you would be deported. Um, there is a, the state has a policy of deporting people. Uh, one issue around that is the that there's more people, there's fewer people actually deported than receive deportation orders, and that's for various reasons. What happens with regards to your right to work, your right to yeah. education? Yeah, so your right to work. We previously, Ireland had a previous to 2018, Ireland had a history of blanket policy of not allowing people to work, full stop. But that changed. Um, in uh, a, a Burmese man took an application to the High Court, the, the Court of Appeal, and then finally the Supreme Court, where the Justice Donald O'Donnell found that the it was unconstitutional to permanently ban people seeking from who are people who are seeking asylum in Ireland from working. And so we, in order to deal with this point, the Irish state transposed the reception conditions directive, which, as I say, is that's a piece of European Union law, and that allows people to work if they've been waiting more than nine months for their first decision. Um, and uh, currently, the figures that we have from June are that there's around uh, 1,500 people who are who are working and living in direct provision. There's issues around that um, process, particularly difficulty in accessing bank accounts, and a you cannot access a driver's license if you're in the asylum process. So those are barriers. But there are 1,500 people out of a total of 700. 7,000 is quite a significant number of people given those barriers who are actually working. I assume, terms, I assume yeah. a lot of people, Nick, want to work. Indeed, completely. Yeah, it's been a, it was a huge issue prior to this change of law around people feeling completely um, just wasting away, not being able to give anything back to Irish society, not being able to, give, to keep themselves occupied not, occupied, not being able to pay tax and so on. People want to work, yeah, most definitely. Um, we, for example, we worked with at least 50 people who worked in the healthcare sector during the pandemic, particularly in nursing homes, doing really difficult work and working in nursing homes. And we've we've spoken to nursing home employers. I've spoken to several who talk about how important that group of people was as, as part of their their staff. Uh, so very much so, people want to work definitely. Do you find Nick that there's a level of misunderstanding about the direct provision system in this country? Um, I, do, I actually don't. I think there's quite a strong understanding of the system. It's taken maybe longer than we would have thought or liked for this understanding to seep into our society. But I actually think it's very, it's part of our, part of our public um, discourse, part of our 
discussions as a society of where we want to be and what do, what do we want to do and what, how do we want to treat people in this situation. And let's not forget, direct provision has been a, a rural or a semi-rural policy in many ways. It's been local communities, often some quite remote or even uh, and rural, who've been that community next to a direct provision center that have provided the support and welcome that people need. It's not, um, it's not a sort of Dublin-centered. Uh, the policy may come from set government in Dublin, but it's not as if the few people are really accommodated in Dublin anymore. There's been a closure of several centres. Um, so I think there is an understanding uh, understanding of it. I think we have to be wary of, um, I'll be honest, just forces like far far right ideology and racism um, and um, what that how that could distort this. This situation. Okay. Uh, um, the Children's Ombudsman just finished, just said, released a report in July talking about the experience of children and direct provision, and in particular the racism that they experience. So okay. the, we always have to be aware of that. Nick Henderson, CEO of the Irish Refugee Council, my thanks to you for joining us here on Between the Lines today. We'll be continuing our series here on News Talk about the truth about direct provision in just a few moments. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to this week's Between the Lines programme here on News Talk with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're continuing our series looking at the truth about direct provision. Well, joining me on the line is Ellie Kasombi, who's a direct provision activist and a former Social Democrat local election candidate for the Dublin North Inner City. Ellie, just first of all, will you tell us a little bit about your own experience with direct provision? Yeah, so I moved over here to uh, speak asylum and then I... Uh after I started my process, I found myself in direct provision where I lived there for many, for many, many years. And, uh, you know, when I was moving here anyway, like I knew that I'm going to start all over again, you know, seeking for protection. But anyway, I, I, when I did find myself in direct provision, I didn't expect, you know, the long wait and the long stay and not even only the long wait and the long stay. And also I didn't expect uh, the lack of basic human rights in the system. Uh, that's also one thing that, you know, like it actually not only shocked me, but find me a little bit paralyzed because I wasn't able to actually do much of the things. And uh, maybe to be like, I say like, oh, direct position. <laughs> I don't see myself like a dad, but I think I am somebody that, you know, like over the years and also from the background that I'm coming from, I think I've championed into social justice and also coming over here to find that, you know, like we don't have like the basic human rights in social justice criteria and for people that are coming over to seek asylum. And that's another thing that actually really shocked me. Can you tell us a little bit about when you first came to Ireland? Yeah, so when I first came to Ireland, you know, like uh, it's all for every person that is seeking protection. The, the system is very, very complex. And I really have to find uh, my feet of how I can actually uh, process my um, my my case. And, you know, like it's not a direct thing. You know, there are many, uh, many complex ways that you have to get through to be able to start your process uh, to uh, to seek asylum. Tell us a little bit about that process application, Ellie, that you went through, or maybe did yeah. you come here with family members, or if you can just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no, so when I was coming here, I didn't come with uh, uh, family members. I came here myself. I left my children and also part of my family, like my sisters, so I left them back, and then I moved over here 
uh, myself, and I, I, I arrived in uh, in Ireland by myself. And that must I have been started... very difficult, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not really sure, like, what's the best content to put it because you are getting into something that you're really, really not sure what's going on. And you, you kind of, like, every day you wake up and finding everything. So it's very difficult. And uh, also, most of the time, you don't do things by yourself. There have to be other people that they have to help you around. So, like, uh, maybe you might get a different information and then you realize that it's not totally what you've been told. It's, it's, it's something different. So it's a very complex situation to get through. It's hard. It's tough. But at the end of the day, what everyone looks is to just get that safety and start all over again. When you first came to Ireland, what were your impressions? Now, my impression was to actually uh, start my process to seek asylum and start my process. And then within maybe two, two three months, uh, being allowed to uh, be given a stay to live here normal and bring over my children and also my family. And yeah, start over and moving on with life because you have to remember that. At the time I was coming, I lost everything and I come here with nothing. So, you know, like you have to start uh, uh, picking yourself up one by by one and looking into what's the first thing. The first thing is your family and moreover when you have small, small kids that you've left behind. So that was my main, main point and that's what I expected. I didn't expect to stay like, you know, like over the years that I've spent in direct provision. How long did it take you to effectively, I suppose, come through the process or come out the other side of it, if if that happens? It's almost a decade. Yeah. A decade? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost a decade. It took me almost a decade, yeah. And oh. l- looking back, Ellie, mm-hmm. what would you do differently? To be honest, I don't have like a... It's a very difficult question to ask someone like me because you have to understand, like, in the first place, I didn't even actually have a choice that mm-hmm. I'm going to land to Ireland. I wasn't looking for a luxury. I wasn't looking for a luxury, right, even to be treated different. Or what I was looking for is to find a safe place that I can be accepted and start my life all over again because I had a life before direct provision mm-hmm. and there, is, there was Eli Kichombe before I was an asylum seeker. So there was an identity that described me as a as a clever, smart, intelligent woman raised by clever, smart parents that just lost their lives. And, uh, you know, and I had a lot uh, for myself. So that's what I was expecting. I was expecting to land in a country where I can accept it and I can be looked as as me and, you know, like not even my story to confine me, but me being able to say this is what I am. And when I started, you know, like uh, even floating in Ireland and people just to see what I'm uh, what I'm bringing into uh, the uh, Irish space and accept me like that. And that's the thing that I really accepted. I think I really, really wanted, I think, is to be accepted and to be allowed to start all over again and move on with my, the life that I've lost and build it again. I presume when you were living in direct provision, Ellie, mm-hmm. you, you weren't in a position to work. Yeah, like my time was a very, very tough time. That's what I'm saying. Like when I was actually coming to Ireland, direct provision was actually direct provision. So it was really the direct provision that it is not now because now a lot of things have changed. Although it is a little, we create a little, but for somebody like me, that I came into that old system, for us, it was like men living in a different version of prison, right? So, like, you didn't have much to do with you. You didn't even have, like, even you had a curfew. Like, and if you miss that curfew, you'll be even, you know, you find your stuff out of that hostel. You know, like, people would treat you the way they like, you know. There was not even a respect of human dignity. And not even only that, you have to have planned times of eating your, eating your food, you know, which is something ridiculous. And 
not even only that, you were not even allowed access to level education, not even a right to work. There was there was literally nothing. Literally nothing. I was even actually good enough because at least I had English as my as also like the, the, my first language from where I'm coming from. But you find people that were coming from areas like Somalia, you know, Arabic countries like Middle East that they didn't even have a word of English, and that means they were just like there, and you know, like not knowing what to do next. With calls now to change and with a commitment mm-hmm. to to change the direct provision system, mm-hmm. what would you like to see done differently? Uh, like uh, what I would. I would like to see different is first to dismantle the whole direct provision system, right? There is a way where people can be dignified and re, uh, received in Ireland as as every normal human beings to to be allowed into a space whereby everyone has a human right to live with uh, to live with a with a value and dignified life, to be able to access many of the. Uh, um, of the welfare that every citizen is allowed to access. And also another thing is to be able to process the cases as quick with honesty so that people, they, they don't need to to, 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 ask to process cases for people like in two weeks just to get rid of them. But also to really understand, I've lived in direct provision for a very long time and I can tell you something strange. People that they have genuine cases, like they have genuine, even for me, somebody just to start, not even start telling me their lives, but you can even actually tell that these people need something. They're even the people that all, every time they always find themselves in the wrong of the system and then they're being labeled as liars and all of that. So I wanted that, I wanted that stigma to end right from the course of it, which is the, the Department of Justice, that end of disbelieving people because people are being labeled as sponges and all of that. It has to start. And that attitude it has to start with the Minister of, Minister of Justice, you mean, where they look after the asylum seeker and people being processed rightfully and even with a such amount, like a good amount of time, make sure people have been processed and they've been given their rights. Uh, to live peacefully and to let them go and start their own lives and then p- keeping people for years and making money out of them. It's not right. I'm sure the, the, the Justice Department now will reject some of your, your accusations um, in, in terms of how asylum seekers and people going through the direct provision process are being dealt with. But can I just ask you, Ellie, finally, um, what's your message to the new minister who has responsibility for this department in terms of their commitment to trying dealing with direct provision here? Yeah, I don't actually know him. I've never met him. I've never even heard him. And unfortunately, because of the COVID and all what is going on, I've never even write him a congratulation letter for his post. But then I would actually believe that he is a, a very empathetic and a compassionate person because in everyone that take a responsibility of every, of every ministry, wherever, as long as you're dealing with human beings, you have to be first a compassionate person. So I think that's who he is. And then from there, I think he can also sit down as a human being, look into how this system was broken, because this system is not fit for a purpose and it's not fit for anybody else. And then he can look into that and also make accountability by involving people that they have lived experience, not the yes bosses, but the people that they are going to give him a true account of what the system it is really like and that he can work with them and actually look into those, not allegations, but things that can be proven, right? And things that can be proven. And he can look into those and say, yes, I think this is not right. And I think I can start making changes from here. Not the hearsays, 
not what people like, not not even him let people to point him to people that they like, but he can work with anyone else that have lived this experience and they've lived here that they really understood that this is this is how wrong the system is. And they can tell him the true account and they can even provide evidence of like this is what we've been through, this is what it is, and in a true account of situations. I think that would be the very that's a good start for him. Okay, on that note, so. on that note, we'll we'll we leave it there. Ali Kasambi, who's a direct provision activist and a social democrat, local election candidate for the Dublin North Inner City. My thanks to you for joining me here on the program today. I'm afraid that's all we have time for for the Between the Lines program here on News Talk as part of our series on the station, looking at the truth about direct provision. My thanks to the production team, as always, Stephen Jordan and Simon Keane. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day. 